As you open your Bible to Exodus chapter 5, I want to uh, really encourage you to read along. What, one of the things, uh, you know what a church values by what we talk about all the time. And we always remind you that we're bringing people together to live, love, and give like Jesus. Uh, but we also often tell you, open your Bible, because the Word of God is valuable to us. We want your eyes on a page. So I don't care if you're on your smartphone or your tablet or this old thing called an actual Bible. Uh, it doesn't matter. As long as your eyes are on a page, we are grateful for that. So you can allow the Word of God to change and transform you. I also want to uh, just reiterate what Nathan said about membership class. We'll start uh, about 10 minutes after the, the service is over. And if you are a member, I encourage you to stick around. Take about an hour. Uh, if you're not a member, please stick around. You can't, uh, you can't vote, of course, if you're not a member, but uh, you can stick around and participate and hear what God is doing. And there's some exciting things going on. So, Well, as a kid, one of my favorite TV shows, well, I had two of them. One was Knight Rider, which is just awesome because it had a cool Trans Am. But the A-Team was my other favorite show. In fact, uh, believe it or not, I would get in trouble once in a while in elementary school for talking in class. Uh, shocker, right? And, uh, uh, and that was my punishment. That I wouldn't get to watch the A-Team that week when it came out. And so I loved the A-Team. Uh, the A-Team, was, if you don't know the story of the A-Team, I'm probably dating myself. And if you're younger than me, you don't even know who this is. But the A-Team, uh, I actually have the introduction memorized. I won't tell you that. But uh, the a it has to do with, in 1972, a crack commando unit. Anyway, um, they were sent to a prison for a crime they didn't commit, and so they escaped to the Los Angeles underground where they help people. And so the show would always have this group of guys going into town, and there would be some defenseless poor merchant or someone in town that was taken advantage of by bullies, and, and the leader of the group, Hannibal, would come up with a plan to free these people and beat the big bullies up. And of course, plan A would never work. It would never work. And so they would improvise on the fly and come up with some machine that shot cabbages out of a wood chipper or something. And, and they would beat the bad guys. And at the end of it, Hannibal would always say, I love it when a plan comes together. And, and I thought, man, that aptly describes sort of what's going on in Exodus chapter 5, oddly enough. Um, as we continue in our series of Exodus, I, I, I think this concept uh, describes the way Moses was as we approach Exodus chapter 5. Here's a guy who had been cowering in the desert for 40 years. He's been powerless and afraid, but now he's got a plan. God has come to him and given him a mission, and he's all full of swagger, and he's going to waltz into town back in, into Egypt, and he's going to free these Israelites because he's on a mission. He's got a plan. He's the ambassador of the God of the universe. So he doesn't have to be afraid anymore. I've been afraid for 40 years, but I got a plan. He's got swagger. He strides into Pharaoh's presence. Look at verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go. You can sort of see Moses having a swagger, don't you? So that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. All right. Well, I guess I didn't need that. Um, he's got God on his side. Thanks, Eric. I got too excited there. Um, Moses has God on his side. He's, he's 
excited. He's full of swagger. He's waltzing in. And he's like, I got a plan. What could go wrong? And I think if I had to guess, Moses just thought, well, God told me to do this. I'm going to waltz in there to Pharaoh. And I'm going to tell him what to do. And Pharaoh's going to go like, oh, no. God said this? Well, of course. Yes, take the people. Go. Leave. It's okay. Here you go. But uh, instead, <laughs> Pharaoh responds with this. Look at, look at verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And Moses says, wait, 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 wait. Well, this was not the plan. What is going on here? Today, I want you to know that being an ambassador for Christ is not easy. Our plan A doesn't usually work. In fact, kingdom work, in kingdom work, it often gets worse before it gets better. So we, we've been in Exodus for over a month, six weeks now, and it's a series about getting to know God. And, and we've been introduced in chapter one, we see that the Israelites are in slavery. In chapter two, we get Moses' origin story. In chapter three, God meets Moses at the burning bush and gives him a mission. In chapter four, he goes back and he meets with the Israelite leaders, and it goes really well. Today, we're going to see what happens when plan A doesn't work. Moses finally appears before Pharaoh. He's ready to be an ambassador. He's ready for the mission to be accomplished. He's ready to hang the banner. Mission accomplished. In the, you know, but it doesn't go according to plan A. It, it doesn't go well at all. Moses is completely dejected. In fact, at the end of our passage, if you were to look at the last verses of, a, of this passage today, he says this in verse 22, God... Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak your name, he's brought trouble on this people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. In other words, God, I did what you asked, but it's gotten worse instead of getting better. What's up with that? Today I want to ask you what happens when plan A in your life doesn't work? What happens when you're on a mission for God and things don't go according to plan? What about your plan for your life? What happens when that doesn't work out? What's next? Being on mission for Christ, being an ambassador of Christ isn't easy. Our plan A doesn't usually work. In fact, in kingdom work, it gets worse before it gets better oftentimes. God calls Moses to be an ambassador. God didn't need Moses, and I think this is an important thing to note. God could have just squashed Pharaoh like a bug, right? Like just, he's done. God chooses to engage Moses for Moses' good, for the Israelites' good, and for God's glory. He calls Moses to be an ambassador. Did you know God calls you to be an ambassador? He calls me to be an ambassador. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's, men's sins against them. He's committed to us this message of reconciliation. And listen carefully. He says, We are therefore 
Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Moses was an ambassador for God. You and I are an ambassador for God in Christ Jesus. Being an ambassador for Christ, though, isn't easy. It's not easy. Our plan A rarely works. It usually gets worse before it gets better, and that's what happens to Moses. Today, I want to ask you three questions. If we know that it usually gets worse before it gets better, if we know that oftentimes our plan A doesn't work because God's got a different plan, I have three questions for you. If we know it isn't easy, the first question is, why are we surprised by opposition? Why are we surprised by opposition? That's the first question I want to ask you. Moses gives God an ultimatum. And Pharaoh isn't buying it. So Moses reiterates it in verse 3. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. He may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Pharaoh doesn't respond as Moses expected, though. He, Moses is warning Pharaoh, and he's not responding. In, in verses 4 or 5, uh, Pharaoh flips the script on Moses. He, he blames Moses and Aaron for this, and he yells, get back to work, you lazy bums. He's like an angry boss, right? And, and Moses said, it's interesting here, Moses said, God wants his people not to work. He wants them to go out in the desert and worship him. And Pharaoh says, mm, I don't care. I want them to work. Moses said, no work. Pharaoh said, more work. There's this theme here in Exodus chapter 5. There's a theme, and it continually comes up. Pharaoh is setting himself up as God. And so we're going to see God says, Pharaoh says. We see this tension rising to the service, God versus Pharaoh. And this theme is repeated throughout. Pharaoh is very comfortable having slaves. Uh, this is not about a threat. It's about Pharaoh's control. He has set himself up as God. And he says, when he says, who is the Lord? He's not saying, well, I'm ignorant. Who is this God? I would like to know him. No, he's saying, I do not recognize the authority of your God. Otherwise, he would have just added him to the added God to the group of Egyptian deities, right? He does not recognize God. He's saying, I am God. And he's ready to oppose Moses and the Israelites and the work of God. Christians in the same way, have experienced opposition for most of our 2,000-year history. What we have here in our country is fairly unusual. For, for much of our history, somewhere in the world, Christians have been experiencing opposition. Sometimes it's overt political persecution. Sometimes it's cultural pressure. Sometimes it's unemployment pressure or physical abuse or humiliation. God's presence, it's important to recognize, God's presence does not guarantee immediate results that we want. Sometimes we go, oh, God's with me. Huh, that's going to go the way I want it now. 
There's a whole group of false teachers out there that teach that God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. That isn't the way it works. Oftentimes when God's presence is with us, we are blessed by his presence, but things are going to get harder before they get better. Why are we surprised? We should not be surprised by opposition. We shouldn't. We hold that the message of the gospel of God's grace is so important. If we believe that the gospel is so important, we should expect Satan, who is the enemy of God, to want to stand in opposition to the gospel of God's grace because this gospel of grace will turn over the fabric of the world. The world wants to erase any trace of grace. The message of the cross reminds people that something is wrong. People don't want to admit that. Okay, this doesn't mean we should be stupid, right? Paul tells us that we should try to make the gospel tasty or salty, seasoned with salt. We have to use wisdom in each particular situation as we apply the gospel. Uh, It doesn't mean we should go and invite opposition. Listen, if you go to your office, let's say you work at one of the big companies and you have a cubicle at work and you stand up on your cubicle one day and you start shouting across the entire room, about the love of God, that God loves them, he cares about them, you shout out the gospel. That's good, right? Well, you know what? They're going to stop you. And it's not because they hate the gospel. You're being loud and obnoxious. You're interrupting everyone's work. Stop it. Be smart, right? Be intelligent. Use half a brain. It doesn't matter at that moment if you're yelling uh, about, you know, the gospel or lamenting the fact that the Cardinals just got bumped out of the playoffs, right? Or rejoicing. Anyway, uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Don't be dumb. Don't invite opposition. But don't be surprised by opposition to the gospel because we have a real enemy who hates the gospel of God's grace. We, are, we shouldn't be surprised by opposition. Being an ambassador for Christ isn't easy. The second thing, the second question that we would ask today is why are we so offended by attack then? Why are we surprised by opposition? Second thing, why are we offended by attack? Pharaoh is about to take Moses' plan A and flip it on his head and he's going to retaliate. Look at his retaliation here. Verse six, that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. This is why they're crying out, let us go sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to Moses, to his lies. Pharaoh's about to show Moses a thing or two. He says, hey, you got your plan? (laughs) I'll show you who's boss. Watch this. And the full attack is on. The text continues, verse 10. So when the slave drivers and the foreman went out and said to the people, they went out, they said, this is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go, get your own straw. Wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. 
The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, why didn't you meet your quota of the bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh. Pharaoh versus God. You need to see here the, these comparisons. Look at what the text says. It says what God says versus what Pharaoh says. Once again, Pharaoh's setting him up as God. In verse 1, Moses says, this is what the Lord says. This is what God says. Look at verse 10, what the slave drivers say. This is what Pharaoh says. You're supposed to read this and compare them. You're supposed to go, hey, wait a minute. That's the same language used for God. Pharaoh's copying God. God says rest. Pharaoh says work. Pharaoh is not merely opposed to God. He's attempting to set himself up as God. And now he's attacking the people of God. These Israelite foremen, they're beside themselves. Every day, they could barely keep up the quota of bricks before. Now they got to go find their own materials. There is no way they can keep up this quota. They're going to get beaten every single day. They're hurt. They're offended. They're aghast. They can't believe it. Look at verse 15. He says this. They, the, the foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten. The fault is with your own people. So you, you're requiring too much. Maybe they think there's a misunderstanding. Look at the word cry out there. We see it in verse 8, where the people cry out to Pharaoh. In verse 15, they, uh, they excuse me, the, the, in verse 8, they cried out, let us go. In verse 15, they appealed to Pharaoh, which is the same word, cried out to Pharaoh. They're crying out, and Pharaoh's responding with harshness, with indifference, with intolerance and misery. That word cry out's been used before. Back in chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, we see the Israelites cried out to God. Notice the difference between how Pharaoh responded to the crying out and how God responded to the crying out. God responds with mercy and grace and by drawing near to them. He was concerned. He cared. He visited them, it says. Pharaoh responds with harshness. Pharaoh hears the cry of God's people and he's hardened. Verse 17 He says this, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. This is why you keep saying, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Get back to work. You'll not be given any straw. You must produce your full quota of bricks. We should not be offended when those who reject the gospel turn and bring misery upon us. I think that's our MO in our culture is to get offended. We get offended about everything, Right? We just get offended all the time. We say, hey, I have rights too. Hey, uh, I, 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 you know, you can't do this to me. That's not fair. We get so deeply offended. But as a Christian, one thing we are called to do is to give up our rights for the benefit of others. All the offense in the world isn't addressed at us. It's addressed at God. And just as Pharaoh's real offense was directed at God, not the foreman, so the, the world tries to offend us and we should not be surprised. But we shouldn't get offended so easy. Um, 
I <laughs> recently found a post of real things that people get offended by on Twitter, okay? Because, <laughs> you know, people on social media get offended by everything. This is awesome. I got a list of 10 things people got offended by. Someone was offended because frogs exist in Canada. Offended because Spanish is both a nationality and a language. Serious. Because his, uh, one person was offended because his teacher referred to the sun as a star. Shocker. The, one, guy, uh, one lady was offended because a man opened the door for her. Uh, someone was offended by Harry Potter tattoos, by a picture of the human heart, by cute animals, by adoption, by the concept of dating. And my favorite, someone was offended by Peter Pan's shadow, right? So, so offensive. We, it's just like, what was what we do? As a culture, we just get offended about everything. And yet, we should not as Christians be offended. Because any offense directed at us is not really directed at us as it's directed at God. The gospel is offensive to others. We shouldn't get offended when people are offended by our gospel. Because the gospel starts with this simple message that says something is wrong with me and something is wrong with you. And when you start at a place that says something is wrong with you, what do you mean something's wrong with me? That's so offensive. Until we embrace this concept that I need saving, that there's something wrong, that I am a sinner, that I am vastly deficient in any ability to reconcile my relationship with God on my own. Until we understand that, we have nothing to get offended about. When we do believe the gospel of grace, that God loves us in spite of our sin, we realize that we're the chief offenders. We don't have any room to get offended all the time. When you live as an offended Christian, it leads to weird things. It leads to the boycott phase. There, like in the 90s especially, there was a boycott phase where we were told all the time that Christians had to boycott certain things. We had to boycott Disney, PetSmart, Starbucks, Wells Fargo, Home Depot, all these, these come, we were all supposed to boycott these, and guess what? It never worked. <laughs> it didn't work. We just need to stop being offended so much. Uh, I remember years ago when Dan Brown's uh, book, The Da Vinci Code, was released. Uh, people got all up in arms about it, you know? Oh, the Da Vinci Code, he, he makes Jesus be out to be, uh, uh, you know, a person and not, not God. And, and he says that Jesus had kids and says all this stuff and, and, uh, and it's just lies and people got so offended by it. They made a big deal about it. And they, by making a big deal about it, they pulled way more attention to Dan Brown than Dan Brown probably ever, ever deserved. Uh, I didn't get offended by the Da Vinci Code. I read it. And I really enjoyed it, actually. It was a great story. It was completely hogwash and not based in any sort of fact. And a simple search on Google will show all that the errors in it. But Dan Brown goes, chill out, guys. It's a story. Uh, Dan Brown has a, has a beef with the Catholic Church, and, and he's just going after him. We don't need to get so offended. We get so offended all the time. Just stop. We should not be offended. The foreman come to, eat, come to Pharaoh, like shocked and offended that Pharaoh would do this. We should not be surprised. Being an ambassador for Christ is not easy. Why are we offended? And then the last question I have for you today is, why are we afraid? Why are we afraid of rejection? If being an ambassador for Christ isn't easy, why are we so afraid? 
Before Moses approached Pharaoh, he, he had come off on a high here. I mean, he'd been working and he'd been worried about what the Israelites would say. Do you remember this? 40 years earlier, Moses, as a, as a young man of 40 years old, thought, oh, I, I, I've been raised uh, as a prince in Pharaoh's court, but I know my mom's told me I'm an Israelite and I'm going to go and, and I'm going to kill an Egyptian and they're going to hail me as their savior. And when he did it, he buried the Egyptian in the sand. He was afraid. The Israelites came to him. And what was their response to him? They mocked him. They got sarcastic with him. They basically said, get out of here, you loser. And, and, and then he went back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh found out what he did, and he's on the run. And like, it didn't go well. So for Moses to meet God at the burning bush, to be told to go back, his, one of his primary fears is that the Israelites will reject him again. So he goes back and talks to the Israelite leaders, and they accept him. Oh, okay, I got the people on my side, Moses said. He gets ready to strut into Pharaoh's place. He's got, he's got acceptance on his side from the people. His problem hasn't been solved yet. Because Moses cares way too much about what people think about him. Look at what happens in verse 19. This opinion of popular opinion is going to sway again. The Israelite foremen, they realized they were in trouble when they were told, you're not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh, and his officials have put a sword in their hands to kill us. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your people? Moses still cares way too much about what people think and not enough about what God thinks. The tables have turned. They have rejected Moses. Uh, they're blaming Moses. The irony here is God selected Moses. God presented Moses. That's all the acceptance, approval that he should need is the God of the universe, but he doesn't. At the end of chapter four, they accepted his word and now they've rejected it. They've rejected him. And when Moses felt their acceptance, he was bold. But when he feels their rejection, he cowers and he blames God. You see, Moses doesn't need to be fueled by the opinion of others. He needs to be fueled by God's opinion. You don't need to be fueled by the opinions of others. You need to be fueled by God's opinion from you. And you need to know that because of what Jesus Christ did for you, you will not be rejected. You are not a slave to fear. You are a child of God. Why do we fear rejection? Now I'm just talking to myself, okay? So I'll just let you in on what I think about this. Because I care too much about what people think. And I care too little about what God thinks. I, I, I care too much about the success of my church as a pastor. And God says, um, time out, Dave. It's not your church. You shouldn't care. It's my church. See, I'm a servant of God. 
And what should form my opinion of myself is not me at all or not you. It's what my master says to me. The rejection of the gospel is not a rejection of us. Stop caring about what other people think. This is a message that I must tell myself often. I am a child of God and he accepts me no matter what. It doesn't matter if people at your work reject you or your neighbors reject you or your family rejects you. It doesn't matter because you're accepted as a child of the living God. And when you do and live the kinds of things at the kingdom work, you're going to face rejection. And it's okay because at the end of the day, they're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting Christ who sent you. When we're ambassadors, that's the good news. It's not really about us. It's about God. I'm not an ambassador for me. The rejection of the gospel is not a rejection of us. And this is the best mission, this kingdom work that God's put us on. It's the good place. Being an ambassador for Christ isn't easy, and our plan A usually doesn't work. In fact, the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, it often gets worse before it gets better. The good thing and the good news here, as we're going to see in Exodus, is that God won't let injustice stand for long. He's about to deal with it. But it has been going on for, oh, say 400 years maybe. Pharaoh hasn't set himself up as God. Pharaoh has set himself up as God and done a massive injustice to God's people. So God will do justice. And when we get to chapter 7, we're going to see God do his justice. But when God calls us to a mission, it doesn't mean this immediate success. We have to trust God, that God, the God of justice, will do what's right. And this is the best mission. It's the good place, even in the midst of opposition, attack, and rejection. Being an ambassador isn't easy. Now, some of you might hear this message and go, Dave, uh, that kind of stinks. <laughs> I mean, why would anyone want to be a Christ follower if all we have to do is face opposition, persecution, rejection. Why would anyone want to do this? Dave, you're doing a really bad sales job. <laughs> but the answer, of course, is because of the gospel of God's grace, because God's good and he rejected. He rejected the claim of Satan on our lives and he accepted us in Christ. And when we understand and embrace this gospel, we say, God, I'm so grateful to you who would rescue an offensive sinner like me that I will live whatever life you put in front of me because that is the good place to be. He supports us. He doesn't oppose us. He defends us because he loves us and he accepts us when others reject us. This is the mission. This is the good place. Our plan A doesn't usually work, but in kingdom work, because in kingdom work, it often gets worse before it gets better. But this is why we as Christians say Maranatha, which means come Lord Jesus. Because we're longing for him to return. And just like the Israelites needed somebody to come rescue them and long for that moment of the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea when they were set free. And just as they would long for that, so we long for Jesus to come back and to return and to be physical king here on earth where he sets all the wrongs right and he rules things the way they're supposed to be done. 
and we long for this. But this is the God we have on our side. And it's okay for us not to live in, in cowering and in offense and under attack because we know who's on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? So I'm thinking about the A-team again as I was writing this. And uh, one of the things that I loved in the A-team is they often said that the same, that every show was the same show, okay? Right? And there's always some little kid uh, uh, of, of some shop owner that's being oppressed by some bully. And this little kid would have nothing to do, you know, some, uh, somebody's extorting money out of his dad's business or something. And so this little kid who's 9, 10, 11 years old would always be cowering in the corner until his dad hired the A-team. And then the A-team would show up, and he would meet B.A. Baracus for the first time, Mr. T. And uh, I'll pity the fool, you know, Mr. T. And uh, this kid would, uh, they would walk into this bully together. And where this kid was cowering before, now he had Mr. T on his side. And that kid would walk in there with a swagger, you know, because it wasn't about his power anymore. It's Mr. T. He's got big arms and muscles. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, there's a confident swagger that you and I can have. Uh, we got someone way better than B.A. Baracus on our side. We have the powerful, almighty God who stands with us when those are opposed to us, who accepts us and doesn't reject us because he loves us. I don't think it's wrong to have a godly confidence. As long as your confidence is not in you, but it's in God. Moses looked forward to the mighty hand of God. He looked forward to, maybe without even understanding fully, that these ten plagues would come and pronounce God's judgment on the false god Pharaoh. We look forward to the mighty return of Jesus. So this God, who is our powerful God, is working in all of our lives to orchestrate the most difficult things in your life in a way that brings him glory. And we look forward to that moment when he comes back. In our series in Genesis, we sang a song, a lot, called Sovereign Over Us. And, uh, and it applies really to this passage as much as it did to any passage in Genesis. Because when those oppose us as Christians, when they reject us, we understand that God's sovereign hand is working for our good and his glory. Because ultimately, the one who opposes us is the evil one, Satan. And ultimately, God will have victory over him. Let's pray as our worship team comes back to lead us in that song. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you, God, would love us in the face of rejection, in the face of opposition. You stand beside us, and while we're not guaranteed an easy life, we're guaranteed the good one in Christ Jesus. And so let us fully embrace the sovereignty of the gospel, the sovereignty of the God who loves us and is working for our good and for his glory. Give us the courage to stand in whatever we're facing this week, knowing that you, God, are on our side.
In Jesus' name, amen.